I think anytime I stand before you to speak, I feel inadequate. But nothing makes me feel so inadequate as a series like we're in right now on the person of Jesus. Because for all of us who've studied world history and all the events that have taken place in our world that have gotten attention, no event in our world is anywhere close. In fact, every other event in some total, it pales in comparison to the reality that Jesus Christ came into our world. It is the biggest news story. It's the biggest event. It is the biggest thing that ever happened to our world, even bigger than creation itself. Because when Jesus came into our world, it was God visiting us. God in skin. In the previous years of the Old Testament, there had been prophets and priests and others who had written about God, talked about God, and told many true facts about God. But when Jesus came for the first time, people could see God. They could listen to God, hear God. They could touch God. And most of all, they could understand what God was like. When Jesus came into our world, he was God in skin, and he revealed to us who God is. In 42 years of pastoring, I've had the privilege of talking to many people who were skeptics and non-believers. And I always appreciate the honor of being included in a conversation with someone who doesn't believe. In fact, if you're here today and you don't believe, I'm so thankful that you're here. And I'm honored that you would give us part of your time. But I will say that so many times I've asked people why they've rejected God. And when they answer the question, it comes to me that they don't know God. What they've rejected is a caricature of God. They heard someone talk about God. They heard things in religion. They picked up this and that. And ultimately, they came with this very skewed, jaded, distorted idea of who God is. And when I hear about the God they've rejected, I've thought to myself, well, I would reject that God too. But unfortunately, they don't know the true God. And I think that that's what's so special, many things so special about Jesus coming into our world. For one thing, as we'll say today, he made a way for us to connect with God. He came to redeem us and to pay for our sins. But I think initially the great thing about Jesus coming into our world, God in skin, is that he revealed to us what God is really like. And when you think about the stories that Jesus told, think about how many of them challenge our preconceived notions of who God is. From, from listening to me speak, you would probably never believe that at one time in my life I taught English. But in my very early 20s, I was bivocational. I was associate pastor of a church, and I also taught English in a large private school. So don't start checking all my grammar issues. I assure you, they are there. But I love literature. I especially love Western lit. And I've loved reading great writers. And being ADD, my favorite form of literature is the short story. That's true. And I have favorite writers of short stories, Somerset Mom, Thurber, as far as humor goes, and I won't even bore you with other names, but I have favorite short story writers. But I remember reading many years ago, one of the greatest literary specialists of all time, one of the most brilliant thinkers in regard to Western lit said, the greatest short story of all time is the story of the prodigal son that Jesus told. The greatest short story of all time. The story is in Luke chapter 15, and Jesus is, well, he's responding to criticism that he hangs out with the wrong people and goes to their homes to eat. As we'll see in our story today, Jesus, Jesus likes to eat, and he receives people's invitations to dinner. So if you like to eat today, and it is 1144, and some of you are thinking about lunch, it is good to know that Jesus liked to eat, and he, he responded to invitations. In fact, he would even invite himself sometimes. True. Remember the story of Zacchaeus? 
And he was climbed a tree to see Jesus. Jesus said, come down from the tree. I'm going to your house for dinner today. But they were criticizing Jesus because he ate with what they considered to be the riffraff of life. And so Jesus told the story, ultimately, of the prodigal son. He said there was a a dad, a well-to-do dad, who had two boys. And the younger was, in the old George Thorogood song, he was bad to the bone. And he said to his dad, I don't want to wait till you die. I want you to give me my inheritance now while you're still living. I'm tired of waiting on you to die. And so the dad did what the boy asked. He gave him his inheritance, and the boy converted into quick cash, went to a distant place where he could live the kind of life he wanted to live without any interference, and he blew through the wad. He spent all of his money on prostitutes and parties and getting stoned and getting high and getting crazy. And after he blew through all the money in a short period of time, famine hit the land. The kid tried to get a job. Of course, he wasn't good for anything, and the only job he could get was feeding hogs. And he got so hungry that he nearly reached down into the trough and pulled up a handful of sloth to eat. When all of a sudden a memory flashed across his mind that he had a dad who was good to even the people who worked for him. And he came up with a plan. He said, I'm going to go back home and I'm going to tell my dad, I understand that I'm not worthy to be a son anymore. I've gone past that. I don't look like a son. I don't act like a son. I don't smell like a son. Would you just hire me? I'm not asking to sleep in the house anymore. Just let me sleep in the bunkhouse. Would you just hire me? And according to Jesus, that when the boy was coming home, the father saw him a long way off, and the father ran and threw his arms around him, and the boy tried to make a speech, you know, Dad, I'm no longer worthy. The father cut him off and said, I'm so glad to have you home. Bring out the best robe. Bring out shoes for his feet and throw a party because my son was dead and he's alive again. The idea that a father could be that way about a son is a challenging thought when we extend that to the concept of God. But Jesus is saying this is what God is like. That even when people run away and do crazy things and flip him off, that God still loves them. See, we wouldn't have known. Would we have ever known that that's what God is like if God in skin, Jesus hadn't come into our world and said, this is what God is like. And for three and a half years, he lived among us and God was here. That's why we celebrate Christmas. And that's why we'll celebrate Easter in a few weeks. Now, when Jesus was on the earth, he basically had a very simple message. And the message went something like this. Sin, sin is what's wrong. Sin is the un-God. Has been since the devil talked our first parents out of their real estate that God gave them. Sin is un-God. You know, there are a lot of people who have the idea that, well, there are certain acts that are sins, and I guess technically that's true, but, you know, is this sin, is that sin? Sin is just, well, Isaiah 53 puts it this way, sin is going our own way. That is what's wrong with sin. It is the un-God. Whatever God wants, sin is the opposite. And that's why there's all kinds of sins. There are moral sins, there are religious sins. There's white-collar sin, there's blue-collar sin. Sin is just un-God. And Jesus said, that's that's what will take you to hell. In fact, it's interesting that Jesus talked more about hell than anybody else. When you want to read about hell, it's not some wild-eyed prophet in the Old Testament. Jesus is the one who had more to say about hell than anybody else. He's the one who said there's fire there. The people there can't get out. But he also said that nobody should go there. He gave us the word 
from John 3, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not go to hell but have everlasting life. So Jesus is saying sin is like an anvil that will sink you into the abyss, but nobody should have that experience because God has sent me, I'm coming to the world, that I can pay for your sin so that nobody should go to hell. And you have this message, and some might look at it as a dichotomy, but I think ultimately it was a single message, that sin is what destroys, but God doesn't want that to happen to anybody, and he's made a way for sinners to become innocent. Not acquitted. We all know about stories of people in the United States and the history of jurisprudence that got acquitted, but we still think they're guilty. Jesus came into our world to do something amazing. He came into the world to say, sin is wrong. See, we live in a world today where the concept of postmodern America is, you remember Gordon Gecko from Wall Street, all of you who have, a, you know, you're 40 years old or more, you, you remember Gordon Gecko, greed is good? We, we live in a culture today that says sin is good. But Jesus said, no, it's not. But nobody should pay the price for sin because he came into the world to pay the price for sin. Now, when Jesus came into the world and he brought this message, he was greeted by three kinds of people. The first kind of people, we don't read much in the Bible about these people. We don't need to, so it's a foregone conclusion. But these are the people that said, we like our sin. We don't expect to change. and We don't intend to change. Well, the Bible doesn't talk about them a whole lot, but clearly they rejected Jesus out of hand. The second group, we hear a lot about them because these are the people who will be Jesus' primary enemies. These are the religious elite. These are those who have worked out a sort of hypocritical system so that they don't sin. You know, what I do is, do you, and again, I'm, I know I'm appealing to some of you who are a little bit older, or at least you love history, but for those of you who remember the story of Richard Nixon, President Nixon, who was almost impeached but resigned before impeachment, and it was a scandal and a shame, Richard Nixon was interviewed after Watergate, and he said, if the president does it, it's not, it's not a crime. Really true. He said, if the president does it, it's not a crime. Well, we look at that and we're horrified and we shrink back. But there are people in hypocritical religion that say, well, if I do it, it must not be sin. What other people do is sin, but my sin is not sin. They work out some sort of religious gymnastics by which they are not sinners. Well, they didn't like Jesus' message. In fact, the ultimate enemies of Jesus who would want to see him on a cross was not in group one necessarily. It was in group two. It was this religious elite. Jesus upset their apple cart. But there was a third group of people who were, they loved Jesus' message. And the interesting thing about this group of people, they were, they were not like Jesus. When you study the story of Jesus, you will discover that Jesus liked people who weren't necessarily like him. Ordinarily, this group of people were classified with two words. They were known as sinners and tax collectors. Now, the sinners were just people that everybody knew were sinners. I mean, everybody in town knew their story. They were just hell raisers. They were sinners. In those days, tax collectors were considered so awful that they didn't even rise to the level of sinners, you know? I mean, if you were a tax collector, you, you, you know, you were so bad, you couldn't even, even if you tried to change your life, you couldn't even get up to the classification of sinner because they were notorious cheats and thieves. And yet over and over and over in the stories of Jesus, we keep reading that the sinners and the tax collectors came out to hear Jesus gladly. In fact, the story I told you about the prodigal son was when the group two, the religious elites, didn't like the fact that Jesus was eating with group three. I think what we should draw from this is these are people who knew about sin. They didn't need Jesus to tell them that sin was bad. They didn't need, to, they didn't, they didn't need Jesus to tell them that sin was painful. They knew. They knew firsthand. They knew by experience. 
They knew that misusing your body is not a good idea. It's sin. It's bad. They had paid the price for that. They understood that cheating and lying in order to get ahead didn't make anybody happy or feel good about what they had. They, they didn't need Jesus to tell them that sin was bad or dangerous. They clearly understood that sin is like a drowning man chained to an anvil. The problem with people who have integrity about sin, and I'm guessing that there are quite a few of us here today, because New Spring is the kind of church where we don't pretend. <laughs> you probably wouldn't be at this church if you were in group two. The problem that we have is because we understand with our integrity that sin is bad, we can begin to ask questions like, is it too late for me? Or have I gone too far? Or is it possible that God would not love me? See, you know your stuff. I don't know your stuff. You don't know my stuff. But you know your stuff. You know what you've done. You know what you've thought about. You know what you would have done if you didn't get arrested. You know what you've done that nobody else knows about. You know your stuff. And that's why sometimes you can feel like the worst person in the world because you know your stuff. And that's group three. These people, they, they, they knew their stuff. They knew that they were sinners. But the reason why they loved to hear Jesus talk is because Jesus offered hope. Jesus talked about stuff like being born again. He talked about stuff like starting life over again. He talked about being a new person. He talked about how sinners could be innocent. Well, I'm going to tell you a story today from the Bible. It's in, it's in Luke chapter 7. It is interesting that among the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only Dr. Luke tells this story. And I also need to kind of pull over to the side of the road for those of you who like to study your Bible and say, what we're going to be talking about today is a woman who anointed Jesus with fragrant perfume. And for some of you already, you said, wait a minute, Mark, I've seen that in the Gospel of John. I've seen it in Matthew. I've seen it in Mark. No, there are two events that happen. One of the events would happen the last week of Jesus' life. I think it happened on Tuesday night before Jesus was crucified. And that was in Bethany, and it was done by a lady of standing in the community. Her name was Mary. Jesus had just raised her brother Lazarus back to life. And she broke a box of expensive ointment on Jesus' head. But this story happened at least a year before, and it wasn't in Judea. It was in Galilee, and it wasn't a woman of standing. It was a prostitute. And she didn't put the ointment on Jesus' head. She put it on his feet. And so I just tell you that so that you will understand. Only Dr. Luke tells the story. I was talking to Stephen about this. You know, if you ever read the beginning of Luke's gospel, Luke was writing and he said, many others have set forth to tell the story of Jesus. But Luke said, he was writing to a Greek intellectual, and he said, I've done careful investigation. My guess was this story had made the rounds, and Dr. Luke said, I investigated this, and this is the story. Well, let's talk about it. At the beginning of the story, Jesus is invited to dinner. But this time, strangely enough, he's invited to dinner from a, by a guy from group two. His name is Simon, and he is known in the Bible as Simon the Pharisee. He is the religious elite. But what you should understand about this dinner invitation is he has not invited Jesus to show him honor. In fact, Simon and his, his group of ultra-religionists have invited Jesus over to put him in his place. Because after all, this upstart, this Jesus is drawing huge crowds and he has to learn how life works. And so consequently, the Pharisees have brought him over to show this boy if he wants to have a ministry, here's what it's going to take to fit in with us. 
But Jesus accepts the invitation. And he goes to what maybe is the nicest home in town. From the moment he walks in, well, it's very clear. They didn't come to lift Jesus up. They came to diminish him. They came to shrink him so that he will, he will know that he's not all that important unless he links up with them. You know, that's the opposite of worship, isn't it? In worship, you lift Jesus up, but there are people who want to shrink Jesus. And so I just want to make sure that you understand that Simon and his buddies, that's what they've invited Jesus over to do. They've, it's kind of a bait and switch thing. They've invited him over as if, as if he is to be the guest of honor. But as soon as he gets there, it's the cold shoulder. But in those days, if you weren't part of the beautiful people, you at least could look at what was going on. And outside the gate of Simon's house, there were people from the community who didn't have a seat at the table. They, they didn't earn a seat in the way Simon saw it. They weren't good enough or important enough, but they could at least stand at the gate and look on. It was sort of like prehistoric people magazine. And outside the gate are people that are looking in to see what's going on. Well, the one we're interested in is a woman because there's a woman at the gate who's looking in. I kind of already have hinted at her situation. One of the things that we'll see so clearly in this story is that oftentimes you and I see situations of where people are wound up, but we don't know what led to where they wound up. I don't think that people, when they're young, have dreams of blowing up their lives. I don't think think this young girl, this woman when she was a young girl, I don't think she dreamed of being a prostitute. I don't know how it happened. Maybe she dated the wrong guy. Maybe he turned out to be a jerk and she dated somebody else and he turned out to be the wrong guy and just enough bad situations and after a while, she's just that kind of a girl. And no self-respecting man will be with her. You gotta make a living. Two and two. And anytime anybody at that table other than Jesus looked at the woman, they would have looked at her and seen that she was a prostitute. <laughs> you know, with Facebook, you have the change of status. Well, what the rest of the people around that table couldn't have known is that she'd had a recent change of status. Like I said a few moments ago, the stories of Jesus are in four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And sometimes it's a challenge for Bible students to know how it sequences. But there's a great study tool. And if you like to study the New Testament, I would recommend this study tool. It's written by one of the greatest Greek scholars of the last 150 years. A guy by the name of A.T. Robertson wrote a book called The Harmony of the Gospels. And he takes the pieces of the Gospels and he sequences them. And thanks to Dr. Robertson, we know the sermon Jesus preached right before this happened. So we know the sermon this woman had just heard. It's in the book of Matthew chapter 11. You know what led to her change of status? Listen to this and see if you don't... Can you put yourself in her place and think about how she must have felt when she heard Jesus preach this? Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out? Come to me. Well, that's one thing this woman had never heard, at least not in a long time. Nobody asked her to come to her. I mean, what she heard was stay away, go away. If they didn't like her lifestyle, stay away from us. And as soon as a man was through using her, go away. Stay away, go away. And yet Jesus comes along and says, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. 
I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn how to live freely and lightly. (laughs) No wonder she responded. Well, as she stands there and looks inside the gate watching Jesus, she understands that she doesn't have a seat at the table. She never will have a seat at that table. But she wants to do what I think the rest of us in her place would want to do, and that is she wants to live vicariously and watch the beautiful people, the worthy people, do for Jesus what she would wish that she herself could do. She can't honor Jesus, but they are They are good people. They are religious people. And clearly they, being worthy, will do for Jesus what she in her heart wishes that she will do and she will live vicariously through them. She knows what's going to happen. Hey, when somebody was a guest of honor, there were at least four things that happened. The first thing that was going to happen is, well, when the person walked in, given the hot, dusty roads in those days, there would be someone with a towel and a basin of water that would wash the feet. So somebody's going to come wash Jesus' feet, maybe even put some fragrance on them. And then the host would come in the presence of everybody else and give the kiss of friendship, oftentimes on both cheeks. And then the third thing that's going to happen is the guest of honor will be escorted in the presence of everyone else to a seat at the head of the table. And then that fourth thing, and she's really looking forward to that, the fragrance, the perfume. This woman knows cosmetics. She's standing at the door wondering what particular cosmetic, what fragrance are they going to use for Jesus? Because see, in those days, if a person was a special guest, what they would do is take a small sachet or cake or fragrance and place it on the head. And during the dinner, the body heat of that person would melt the fragrance and aromatize the entire room. She can't wait for the fragrance. Wonder what particular fragrance they will use for Jesus. But to her utter horror, they don't do anything. Nobody greets him with a pan of water to wash his feet. And nobody comes to give him the kiss of friendship. They do the absolute opposite. They turn their backs on him, and they don't give him a seat at the head of the table. They they give him the seat by the door. Do you see her in your mind as she stands at the door looking in? This is my favorite part of the sermon. It's not the most important part. It's just my particular favorite part of the sermon. As she stands at the door looking in, she says to herself, this situation has got to change. I'm not worthy to go in, but somebody ought to do something. Somebody's got to do something about this. Why not me? Have you ever felt that? We live in a very self obsessed, narcissistic age, even among the church. So it could be that you've never felt it, but some of you may have. And I'll just, if you haven't felt it, just zone out for a minute. But let me talk to those of you who feel it. You look at the world, you look at the brokenness of it. On the other hand, you look at the Savior, Jesus, and who he is, and you say to yourself, I don't know that I feel worthy, but somebody should do something. And if nobody wants to do something, why, why not me? It's personal for me. I'm in my 42nd year of pastoring, my 34th year here. Do I ever feel worthy to preach? Absolutely not. But God is good and Jesus is coming. Why not me? Is there anybody else who feels this today? If there's not, don't don't worry. Just there are other issues for you to consider. 
But am I talking to anybody here today? You, you, you think about right now while we're here, there are thousands of kids in kids' world, and they're learning the most important message in a high-energy way, and there are people back there working in kids' world today, and if you talk to them, they would say, I, you know what, I'm really not worthy to do this. I've made some bad choices in my life and gone down some wrong roads, and surely there have got to be other people more worthy than me, but something needs to be done, so why not me? Why not me? Well, like I say, we live in a very self-absorbed age, and there are a lot of people today who are Christians, and all they seem to want is hell insurance. And I, I, I won't be talking to you right now, but I'm talking to some of you who know what it's like to suffer the pain of sin and the joy of forgiveness and the love of Jesus. And you don't feel worthy, but hey, why not me? Why not me? And in a moment, she's made her decision to do the most socially unacceptable thing that you could imagine. She opens the gate and walks straight into the room and takes a flask of perfume that in those days would cost a year's wages, and we know how she got it. And she walks straightly to where Jesus is and opens the flask and doesn't just put a little cake on Jesus. She dumps the whole contents on Jesus' feet. Freeze that picture. What gave her the courage to do that? I mean, I mean, think about this, you know. I mean, she was Jewish, so I guess we should say chutzpah. I mean, what was it that gave her the chutzpah to walk in there and do this? This may be the most important part of the sermon. For those of you who know anything about the Bible, what is the most important commodity in the life of a God follower? It is faith. Faith is what Jesus was looking for. He was unhappy when he didn't find it. He was thrilled when he did find it. Faith is how you go to heaven. The Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him. God is looking for faith. What exactly is faith? Is faith wanting something to be true so much that we just tough it out and say, oh, I got faith. That's faith in faith. That's not biblical faith. What is faith? What I'm about to say, I think, will help many of us here today. Faith is running a balance. It's running a total. I'll tell you what I mean by that. Faith is looking at your situation and God's promises and running a total. For instance, let me give you this in a simplistic illustration. Suppose that you owe $500 tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock and you can't pay it. But someone who is absolutely trustworthy says, I'll be at your house at 6 o'clock in the morning with $1,000 cash. Now, there you have a debt, and you have the promise of resources. If I asked you, what is your situation right now? If you have faith, you would say, I'm plus 500, because you've run a total. And I really believe that what happens in most Christians' lives and what keeps us from having faith is we see our situation, and we see God's promises, but we never run a total. We sort of bounce back and forth. One moment we're focused on our situation, one moment we're focused on our promises, but we never put the promises of God, but we never put the promises of God together with our situation and then draw, draw a conclusion, come to a total. Let me give you a biblical example of this. When the Israelites were going into Canaan, God allowed Moses to send 12 spies over into the land 
And the 12 spies came back and gave a report. And 10 of the spies said, we went over and looked at it, and the land is just as God promised. It's a land that flows with milk and honey. But there are giants over there, and so consequently we can't take the land. Now, two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, came back and said, yes, our situation is there are giants in the land. But God has promised us that he will give us the land. Ergo, the land is ours. Let's go. Faith runs a total. See, I think for many of us, like I said, we bounce back and forth. One moment we're focused on the promises of God, the next moment we're focused on our circumstances, but we never run the total to see where we are. What is the outcome? Yes, our circumstances are bleak, but look at the promises of God. Yes, I am a sinner, but the Bible promises salvation for all who believe. So what is my situation? If I have faith in God's word, I draw, I come to a total. I run a total and say I'm innocent. Even though I was a sinner, the promises of God have intercepted my situation. And now the bottom line is I am saved. What was it that gave this woman the hotspot? to walk into a room with glaring eyes and take her fragrance and pour it on Jesus' feet. She knew she had been a prostitute, but then the promises of Jesus came and she just ran a total. She just ran a balance. And all of a sudden, a guilty woman felt something that she hadn't felt in a long time. Innocent. Not acquitted. Innocent. I mean, sure, in the past, she knew what it was like to <laughs> she knew what it was like to feel used. She knew what it was like to feel rejected. Now she feels love. And she walks in and pours the ointment on Jesus' feet. Now unfreeze the picture. I mean, it's been beautiful. I, I don't know about you, but I'd like to just stay right there. But unfortunately, we don't get to. Because Simon and his coterie of, of religious zealots and people who've worked out the gymnastics to somehow be perfectly okay, they have disdain for this woman, but their greater disdain is saved for Jesus. I mean, after all, we didn't think he was a prophet, but clearly he let this woman pour this fragrance on his feet. Let's read what Simon said. When Jesus' host of Pharisees saw what was happening, I need to ask for your permission on something. Would you just hang on to that phrase? We're not going to use it right now. We'll use it in about three minutes. When Simon saw what was happening, and the woman, he said to himself, this proves that Jesus is no prophet, for if God had really sent him, he would know what kind of woman this is. All right, and we know how Simon thinks. He's looking at what's going on. He saw what was happening, and he said, if Jesus was a prophet, he would have known that she was a sinner. <laughs> and it wasn't what Jesus was missing. It's what Simon was missing. See, the, pro the problem wasn't that Jesus didn't know she was a sinner. The problem was that Simon didn't know that Jesus was the Savior. Could I say that one more time? The problem was not that Simon did not know, that Jesus did not know the woman was a sinner. The problem was that Simon didn't know that Jesus was the Savior. I could be talking to someone here today, then you say, hey, Mark, I like this message, man. You give it to those religious elitists. I mean, I don't like them either. I don't believe in God, but I don't like church people, so I, don't, I like this sermon okay. 
well, hey, before you go down that road, you might want to consider something. You don't have to be religious to be a Simon. There are postmodern Simons. You don't, even have to believe, you don't even have to be a theist to be a Simon. You can be an atheist and be a Simon. All it takes to be a Simon is just don't need a Savior. Simon wasn't a Simon because he was religious. He was Simon because he just didn't need God. He was okay on his own. I'm going to close this out because wouldn't you like to hear Jesus talk? I'm tired of listening to Simon. Jesus turned to the woman and said to Simon, see this woman kneeling here? My favorite translation is, Simon, do you see this woman? Now, remember a moment ago I said, hold on to an expression because you're going to need it in just a minute. You remember what that expression was? It said when Simon saw what was happening. And now Jesus says to Simon, do you see this woman? See, Simon, people like Simon are always good at seeing what's happening. They just don't see people. Man, when Jesus was on the earth, there were a lot of people with a lot of bad stuff happening in their lives. But the thing I love about Jesus, he always saw past what was happening and he saw the person. For the disciples, if they caught an idea or a glance at the Samaritan woman, they would have just seen the peculiar thing of a woman going out to get water in the heat of the day. They saw what was happening. It's not what ladies in those days did. They would go out in communities. But this woman went out in the middle of the day because her reputation is such that she didn't want to be around the other women. They would have saw what was happening, but Jesus saw her, didn't he? For the people who walked past the cross, they would have seen two thieves hanging on either side of Jesus. They saw what was happening. A murderer was getting executed, but Jesus saw past that, and he saw the person, didn't he? When he said to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. I'm talking to some of you right now. Isn't it true that a lot of people see what's happening with you, but they don't see you? Doesn't that hurt a lot? When they tell your story and post hurtful things on social media, Maybe they see the painful things that you're going through. They see what's happening. See, you know, Jesus said to Simon, you, you saw what's happening, but do you see this woman? I'm so glad that Jesus can look past what's happening and see me. And now he says, when I entered your home, you didn't bother to offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she's washed them with her tears. You refused me the customary kiss of greeting, but she has kissed my feet again and again from the time I first came in. You neglected the usual courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has covered my feet with rare perfume. Therefore, her sins, and they are many, are forgiven her, for she loved me much. But the one who has forgiven little shows little, little love. Well, this woman didn't have a seat at Simon's table, and she never will. But it's okay, just like you're not going to have some seats at some tables. But there's a much bigger banquet, and somebody much bigger than Simon is throwing a party. And at God's table, there are people like you and me who are flawed and broken and who've gone down bad roads. 
But we came into contact with the promises of God and we ran the table, we ran the sums, and we, we've been forgiven. And even though we were flawed and broken, we sit at God's table, innocent and free. And some 2,000 years after this happened, nearly, I have the extraordinary privilege of standing before you and saying no matter who you are, where you've been, there's still plenty of seats at God's table. There's a place for you at God's table. She goes. 
I just want to talk quickly to two people here. The first group of people I would talk to, you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. There was a time maybe years ago, maybe recently, that you put your life in his hands, but one bad turn led to another bad turn, and you're kind of in a cold place today. You're in church or watching online, but you're a little reluctant to pray. Your father wants you to come home. He's waiting for you. I love that lyric. Your place is set each time the family gathers. Come home. Second person I want to talk to here today or watching online is somebody for whom the lights have kind of come on. You now really kind of see who God is. And you had kind of a distorted view before. Maybe you've run from him, but today you know that God loves you and he wants you to have a seat at his table forever. And that Jesus has paid for your sins. And scripture says anyone who is willing to trust in that message that Jesus died for you and rose from the grave can have all your sins paid for and be washed clean, not acquitted, innocent. That's still the best deal I've ever heard of. And how do you receive a gift? You just ask. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And these are not magic words, but these are words that matter if you mean them. And I'm going to just pray them slowly so you can decide if you want to own them. Okay? So would you just bow your heads with me, both auditoriums. Dear God, I am a sinner. I take that seriously. I can't fix myself but I believe you love me. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe his blood was enough. And I believe he arose from the grave. I ask you to forgive me. I want Jesus as my savior. I want him as my king. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I know we're in overtime, but if you just prayed that prayer with me in either place, either auditorium, would you go straight to an info center? They're all over the campus. They're designated. 
I have a gift I want to give you. This gift box is a Bible just like I preach from, like we send to the prisons. And a little book I wrote that will answer a lot of questions. There's some other cool stuff. So don't wait for next week because Satan would love to just snatch this away from you. But if you just trusted Jesus today, please go by an info center and say, I pray with Mark, and they'll give you that box and you take it home with you. Thanks for being here. It's great to know there's a seat at the table for us. See you next weekend. <laughs>